Just a quick message before the show begins. We're a year in now and I've really enjoyed doing this and I hope you've been enjoying it too. If you have, then please like and share the content and get in touch with any thoughts and feedback and hopefully we can keep growing the show and getting more incredible guests. Thanks and back to the show. I'm Adam Gow, the DJ formerly and sometimes currently known as Waxon. Welcome to the Once a DJ podcast. DJing and DJ culture have been a huge part of my life for better or worse. They've given me a massive buzz at times and loads of stress at others and taught me a load of valuable lessons along the way. On this podcast I speak to DJs from around the world who've made the names when it was just about skills and selection, not social media followers. We'll discuss their journey through Ascendancy and what part it plays in their life now. Whether they're still on the scene, said goodbye to the decks forever, or still get a sneaky mix in when life gives them the chance. Whatever road they've travelled, they were always once a DJ. Welcome to the pilot of Once a DJ. You're going to hear a conversation with DJ Why Not, aka Tony Garcia, a great DJ and human with a 20 year career covering a range of gigs from restaurants to bars to support gigs for your favourite rappers and DJs. Nowadays, he swapped DJing for running his record store, Lucky Records, in Miami. In this chat, we learn about his come up and the opportunities he's carved out along the way, from the networking benefits of a print shop to when opening for Britney Spears goes wrong to how an insurance job 40 years ago got him some great stock for his record shop. This conversation was initially intended purely for research purposes, but there were so many good points and good stories that I couldn't not share this as an episode. So sit back and plug in, and I hope you enjoy this conversation. Firstly, sort of how you how you got into DJing. You're in Miami, right? Yeah, currently in Miami. I was born in Orlando, Florida, which is you know, four hours north of here, um, moved to Portland, Oregon when I was eight. And I lived there till I was 19. So what's the music scene like there? Is that, because I'd, I'd, assu- I'd assume this is my um, British, very potted knowledge of the USA, but I'd, I'd, I'd assume that to be more of like a grunge sort of area, because that's near Seattle, isn't it? Yeah, it's 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 um like a sister city to Seattle. And I would say that's that's probably not a, a wrong take, you know, grunge and uh, that style of music, you know, was definitely pretty popular there in the '90s um, when I was coming up. Do you mind me asking how old you are now? Thirty-nine. So you know, I moved there in '92. I was like a little kid, um, high school, and all that was out there. You know, the underground hip hop scene, for whatever reason, there was like a thing. You know, it's like kind of like this hippie culture there, and uh, they, they gravitated towards underground hip-hop the real shit if you will so it's more like conscious like good life cafe stuff and well at least the scene that i was into at the time you know like b-boying scratching you know going to see the living legends or something like that at you know in high school or how far up from the bay area are you in in is it quite a way or it's relatively close in terms of like you know the influence you know, so all that stuff in terms of like the gangster rap, G-Funk side, I tried, kind of trickled over, you know, and then because we're on that West Coast swing, a lot of touring acts came through. So, you know, anytime there was an underground hip hop tour, Seattle, Portland, San Francisco, make their way south. And that that was kind of like an entry point for me was going to the shows. So what sort of age would you have been going to shows? 15, 16. 
Was it so? Was that scene quite, quite kind of calm? Um, yes and no, I guess. When, when you when you say calm, what do you like? You mean like? I mean, like, sort of like the atmosphere of that. Was there much trouble? Mm, I mean, yes and no, depending on the show. Like, uh, I remember seeing Raekwon, and there was like people in the front row, like throwing up gang signs. I was on the West Coast, so there's like a little bit of gang influence there. But um, for the most part, a lot of the shows I went to, you know, like Black Alucius or something like that, was relatively chill. You know, um, I never felt like there was any kind of sense of like, of that. Um, you know, when I think about it, I don't really remember anything too crazy happening. You know, maybe we'd, we'd smoke a couple joints, enjoy the show, you know, and that, that was kind of that. Um, I'll try to remember, you know, all the Wu-Tang stuff, the Roots, Things like that, um, hieroglyphics, Del the Funk, Kimo Sapien, that kind of stuff. I'm trying to remember. It's been such a long time, but you know, all, all the, the stuff from like you know any any underground hip hop act that came through, I would go to, to check out with my friends and what have you. And I'd go to the b boy battles and see the DJs with the breaks and go to the shows early to catch the opening DJ. You know, when you're walking in, there's there's always a DJ there warming the crowd or whatever. Prior to that, already even moving there. And this just ties in with, you know, your, your question of like knowing the whole story. When I was living in Orlando and I was seven, eight years old, I was getting DJ Magic Mike tapes. Oh, nice. Which were like, you know, bass music. He was, he was based in Orlando and um, he, he spanned so many different generations. But locally, you know, he was a hero. Um, he was a DJ. He scratched. He made bass music. I had the cassettes. You know, I don't think I really had a reference in terms of like visually. But I did have the the tapes, you know. So would Luke have been doing things with that? Like two live crew were around then, I guess. Yeah, they weren't really on my radar. Um, I think I heard Niso Horny on the radio like once with my cousin, and they were definitely, you know, they they were doing stuff. But where I was in Orlando, I you know I was a little kid. I don't know how those Magic Mike tapes made it to my hand, but like they did, and that was like my first like oh DJ Magic Mike, you know what I mean? And anyways, I moved to Portland, lived there, did the underground hip hop thing. Probably similar in terms of like your entry point, scratch pickles, executioners, turntablism, scratching, you know, you get one belt draft turntable, one uh, 1200, so you can work on your cuts on the one side, you know, buying scratch records and, and uh, 12 inches, you know, underground hip hop stuff, um, you know, super duck breaks, all that. And that was kind of like the entry point. So like the... Late 90s, early 2000s, independent hip-hop stuff, trying to learn cuts and hone the craft and, you know, turntablist stuff and all that. Did you ever compete or anything? Uh, I did a couple battles. Never, and you know, nothing serious. You know, lo local stuff. You know, the Guitar Center. That was probably the main thing. Um, and, you know, just like that scene in, in general, you know? So, like, late 90s, early 2000s, got my first setup. Um, out the back of the source magazine, you know, bought the little starter kit, which was absolute trash, two belt drive turntables and a really cheap mixer. I think it was 300 bucks. What, for the full sale? Yeah. That is cheap. So like at the back of the source, they'd have like upstairs records and different uh, stores would have like, get your starter kit and in the pictures that you see two turntables and a mixer, you think this is nice, right? But then it gets delivered. This is like, you know, kind of pre-internet. So you're not like Googling, like, is this decent or not? Anyways, underground hip hop set up. I'm in high school at the time. Um, wasn't really like a DJ, DJ in terms of like party rocker, or what have you. Just kind of like in the bedroom, cutting it up to, you know, 
P-Rock and, and high-tech instrumentals or whatever. Did get booked for a dance. I remember my first real gig gig was at high school. It was for this dance we had. And I think one of the teachers was trying to uh, show me that you could earn money through DJing, right? That's cool. Yeah, it was for this club that they had. And um, so he said, you know, we'll, we'll book you to do this dance. It wasn't anything crazy, but I mean, at the time I only had like EPMD and, you know, I didn't have the records for it, you know, but I did it and, it and it was fun. I bought a few things, you know, to get prepare myself for it. Um, I remember my, my B-boy friends came out and, and did a little break thing during it. And that was probably junior or senior year of high school. And it was great. You know, that was my first taste of like, you know, I think I got a check for it. From there, did you start doing kind of bars and things like that straight away? Or were you like back in the bedroom for a while? Yeah, that was just the very first taste of it. There was a pretty long trajectory to get me to like being a working DJ. From there, um, I lived in Portland another couple of years. I remember I did a couple more things at the high school. They had like skate shows where they set up a mini ramp like in the lunchroom um, and I would DJ those. And then I did like a frat party, I think once um, for Portland State when I was like in high school, which was pretty cool. Jesus, how was that? Was it wild? It was wild, you know, keggers, you know, you know, and I was like a kid, so I thought it was the greatest thing ever. Yeah, you see, I, I think of frat parties and all I can think of now because of the films I've seen is just like EDM. No, man, this was, you know, I remember, and this is kind of embarrassing. I mean, if the biggest song of the night was uh, Petey Pablo, you know, Mr. Shirt, you know, the helicopter. And I somehow I'd gotten that record. My sister had moved back to Florida at the time and she was going to University of Central Florida. She was dating a DJ and he would uh, give me like the promo records he would get that he didn't want. I was 19. I moved back to Orlando. I was going to community college in Portland. What 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 took you from Orlando to um, Portland? Was it like your parents? Yeah, um... parents split up. Mom got a job. Um, but yeah, so I had most of my family, pretty much all my family still lived in Florida. My dad, um, grandma, his side of the family, my mom's side of the family. So I would I was back and forth and I would go back for the summers. And actually now that I'm really thinking about it, this kind of ties in with my identifying DJing and what was going on. I would always record the mix shows on uh, radio, on the, the 102 Jams hip hop station. Because in Portland, it's a very white place. There was no urban radio. There was no hip hop station. Didn't exist up until like a certain year. You know, um, the only access I had to hip hop music, which is kind of my entry point, was like Rap City. Uh, no, not Rap City, UMTV Raps, excuse me. They hang up, play it on MTV and seeing the videos. So when I go visit my dad over the summers, I would watch Rap City. I would record the mix shows from the DJs in Orlando and then I'd play them, you know, all year long when I was back home. And, you know, you memorize exactly the cuts and the doubles and the little routine and just like the mix, you know, like you hear it in your head when you hear a certain song, you're a DJ, I'm sure you can empathize with this. You kind of remember how it sounded on the mix or, you know, whatever. Yeah, I remember hearing um, the Z-Trip Radar Future Primitive and that was the first time I read because I had paid in full the um, cold cut one. For some reason, my stepdad had it and I still, I don't understand why he had it. But like, I, I had that because I just read it from his records and I remember hearing it on Z Trip and Radar and it's like, sometimes you hear a song in the context and you're like, oh my God, this song's amazing. Yeah. And I'd never thought that about it before. But yeah, like, are there any kind of standout mixes that, that kind of define things? Because so, for me, it's things like, yeah, product placement, um, Rare Equations, where I was like, oh my God, 
Like they opened the world of sort of jazz funk and CTI and stuff like that. I was like, oh. And like the Pete Rock thinking on blues, amazing. Though that was probably a bit of a late listen. Are there any sort of certain things from that era that that really kind of um, galvanized what you wanted to be as a DJ? Honestly, man, not, not that I can remember. I did record the mix shows off the radio, and I do remember like certain things about those mixes, but it wasn't anything like this one particular, you know. Yeah, yeah. And and that was when mixtape culture, at least like on the East Coast of the States, was like more about exclusives and not about DJ skills per se. So like I would get like a DJ Clue mixtape with him just screaming. This is another thing like I'd like to, I'd, I think would be a really cool thing to get a documentary about would be kind of the street mixtapes. Over here, you don't know anything about this like street mixtape culture, like Flex and everyone like that. You just, it, it definitely boiled over at a certain point the the mixtape thing because i remember um and this will kind of go back to my story you know i moved to orlando to be in the disney college program oh why so my dad my sister lived in orlando she'd gone to college down there my family lived down there i figured i would join this this college program which was like an internship it was a way for them to get like cheap you know basically labor for college kids to come down and work the summer and that was how i ended up back in florida was through that college program I actually got fired from the job. And this is a little embarrassing, but whatever. It's all part of the story, right? So they had a place called um, Downtown Disney. And it was uh, little nightclubs and bars that Disney owned. And, you know, they had a, a night when all the ta- cast members that worked at Disney would go there. It was like free, like Tuesdays, I believe. And all of us young college-age kids would get drunk beforehand and go down there and, and whatever, you know? So I had gotten wasted with my friends prior to going to the the, the club, and I went to um, this place, this BT Soundstage. It was, and the DJ was just playing this shit of the times, you know, Yin Yang Twins and whatever was popular in that moment. <clears throat> and I was coming from my keep it real, you know, underground hip hop mindset, and they had like a little request clipboard, and I was like, yo, like. I was also drunk, intoxicated, so I was, yo, play some real shit, man. What is this? Blah, 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 you know? Play some dilated peoples or, you know, some tribe, whatever. I don't really remember, you know, but I got booted from the club. And because of that, when I went to show them my ID, they saw my Disney ID, and I got fired the very <laughs> next day for being underage and drunk on Disney property as a Disney employee, right? Um, and it was like a six month internship I was supposed to do. And I think I made it to like two month, two or three. And then that kind of transpired. I actually ended up knowing that DJ and working with him later on years later, which is, is funny, but, uh, that happens. I stayed in Orlando. I went to community college there. I decided I didn't want to go back to Oregon. It was too rainy and cold. The climate there is probably much like England, right? In terms of like 40 degrees overcast, you know, yeah, it's not great sometimes of the year. Whereas, you know, Florida is all fun and sun, at least in my mind, that's how I had it at the time. And just tying it back into the whole mixtape thing, I met a kid in community college who was like a really pretty popular mixtape DJ, like at the time, who didn't even know how to DJ at all, right? He would just line the songs up in his computer and get the exclusives, print up a cover, put his name on it and put it out. So what era is this then? It's early 2000s. 2002, 3, 4. So how was he getting the exclusives? 
Was it? Was he? Was he getting them? Getting the vinyl? He was getting like people were making like exclusive freestyles. So they would record them and just email them to him. But he was on um, like this Bum Squad DJ's thing at the time, and he was getting records sent to his house, which he never used because he got. I think he might have gotten a turntable at some point, but it wasn't really his thing. And so he would say, hey, take whatever you want. He would get records in the mail every day. I would come through and just grab, you know, whatever. Nice. Pretty cool for me anyways at the time. Free records, you know? Yeah. So, I don't know, whatever. That just kind of ties it with the mixtape thing because this was a guy who didn't really DJ but was making mixtapes that I befriended and was getting records from at some point. You know, from Portland to Orlando, I still kind of continue on with the underground hip-hop stuff. <clears throat> I was practicing scratching to no one. I knew no one, just messing around in the bedroom. I ended up DJing uh, a show on OK Player. Uh, this kid, Sean, had uh, I'd put up a post saying they're doing a Little Brother show for UCF, which was like the college there. It was a hip-hop uh, a hip hop um, group, like a club that they had started. And so they got funds from the school to put on a show they booked little brother and you know i guess he was looking for an opening dj i messaged him and ended up djing the show so do you want you messaged him through okay player yeah through the dms so you must have been quite early because i was reading I, like i didn't really know what okay player was until i was reading the dilla book the other week really yeah yeah like it's, it's I, I was aware of it but I didn't really know what it was and what its significance was and about how yeah, people like Little Brother came through that and there was a few, there was um foreign um foreign exchange. Foreign exchange and some other bits, wasn't there, that came through there. So that that's quite a significant kind of break, isn't it? Getting like that's quite a kind of right place at the right time. Just in terms of the internet, really. Yeah, I mean, OK Player was I mean, back then Social media didn't really exist yet, I don't think. Maybe MySpace had started, I don't really remember. But there was like, you know, these different message boards and OK Player being one of the bigger ones where, you know, like-minded uh, aficionados of music and what have you would get on and discuss things. I don't remember how I found out about it, but yeah, it was, you know, they're actively engaging with people for a number of years, you know, back then. So yeah, I met this guy, Sean, DJ this this show, um, then I started doing some events for like the hip hop club at UCF. I did like an AIDS awareness thing on campus. And, you know, back then I was once again, strictly underground hip hop guy. Didn't really have my ears open to other stuff. I was a little closed off in that regard. So were you not, were you not even checking out, um, checking out sample sources or were you, were you just purely hip hop? Purely hip hop up to a point. So I did a battle at Guitar Center in Orlando. And this kind of also ties into the Magic Mike thing. He was one of the judges. Oh, wow. So at that battle, it was one of the spinoffs. And it wasn't a big deal. It was like uh, the way the store, I guess, would generate, you know, revenue and get people interested in DJing. They would have these battles annually. And I battled this guy that was in town from Atlanta. He had moved to Winter Park, Florida, where I lived, which is right outside Orlando, to go to Full Sail, which is like an audio engineering school. So there was like a lot of like budding producers and... um you know, people interested in music that went to the school, DJs, what have you. And I battled him. We became friends. And he had owned a record store in Atlanta or even a partnership or something called More Dusty Than Digital. So we started hanging out, you know, pretty frequently. 
I'd build his apartment. He had just boxes and boxes of records from the shop he had had, his personal collection, and then just stuff that he'd accumulated. And he would kind of put me on like, hey, you have this record and be like Grover Washington, Mr. Magic or Hydra or Breakbeat 101, you know, hey. Ramsey Lewis, you know, um, things that like now are like, you know, I don't know, I figure like most people know, but maybe not. But at the time I was pretty green, you know, so like that was kind of a good entry point into like a lot of records was to Rob and that, that friendship. Um, he would sell me stuff. He'd be like, yo, do you have this? Blah, blah, blah. And I was like, oh, it's the sample to whatever. And that kind of started the whole trajectory of all music. And, you know, you know, it's kind of a similar story to most people where you're like, oh, this was sampled. And then your appreciation of music just grows from there. You start listening to everything because you realized everything's great. You know, you either like it or you don't, right? So it's like, you got your side rock, you got, you know, you start with the breaks and the samples and then it just jazz and, and, and kind of grows from there. Um, so that was kind of what got me into deeper stuff, if you will. Yeah. Outside of the underground hip hop realm and the special of DJing, you have to, you have to like learn, right? What your audience likes and, and this is what kind of maybe puts some of us off, right? Yourself and myself included. You know, um, my sister had the boyfriend that I told you about that was a DJ. And I remember going to a party and he was in underground hip hop too. And he'd give me mixtapes that he made. But then I remember going to a party, he played like a college party and him dropping like a cut off Michael Jackson's off the wall. People going crazy. And then I learned, I'm like, oh, it's not about like this. This is actually good as well. And it kind of opened my perspective a bit in terms of like dance floors and what I like isn't necessarily what they like. And it's okay to, to to cater in certain circumstances. There's always a happy medium. Not always, but there can be a happy medium, depending on the crowd. You know, I did the underground hip hop shows and 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 that kind of scene for for a few years there in Orlando. I made some mixtapes um, that got circulated on the internet a little bit. Nothing crazy, but through those, I met some people. At the time, I was working at Kinkos. Are you familiar with that? It's like a coffee shop. Oh, okay. So. It's like uh, before all this digital media stuff, you know, you'd go there and get your flyers done, your business cards, whatever. So I'd met a ton of people through working there. Um, they'd come do flyers for shows and, uh, you know, got kind of uh, acclimated with that scene in that city. That's really interesting. That, that, I think that's really interesting. I mean, I met so many people through, through that job that, like, you know, maybe they came and they were just like, hey, um, I need to to duplicate this flyer and I said oh what is this oh you got a show coming up here blah 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 struck up a conversation and from there you know you get to know them as an individual go to the show get linked into the scene or what have you I met a lot of really interesting people both musically and just regular Joe Smos but um I definitely was able to meet a lot of people like in the Orlando hip-hop community through that job and it was great you know um I would help them out when they needed flyers they'd come in you know this is a total aside, but also worth mentioning, there was a guy that had worked there before me who I became friends with named Cub, who was a local DJ in Orlando. And at one point, Kinko's was a 24-hour business. It was open all night. And that was like kind of like their business model. And so he had ended up throwing a rave at Kinko's, like a pop-up rave, as kind of like a joke or whatever. Like... At the print shop. At the print shop. He got fired for it. Yeah. <laughs> but in the middle of the night, he had a, you know, a crew come through. They set up turntables, lights, and everything. And 
had this rave. I don't, I th- don't think it went more than like 20, 30 minutes before the cops came and shut it down. But, um, I just, it's DJ related, I guess, you know, and that, that was a thing. So yeah, I was working at Kinko's. Um, I was going to community college at the time. I met all these kids at UCF. They were doing the hip hop uh, club there, started doing some things with them, started doing things with the Orlando hip hop community, like the underground scene, if you will. Um, making mixtapes, uh, befriended some people, c- kind of got in a crew, um, did some cuts on some songs, nothing too crazy, but you know, um, is there anything that's out there for, um, public consumption on Spotify or anything? Maybe I don't really, none of it really, I think made it to the, to the Spotify. There was a handful of things that are off there, mixtapes and stuff like that. But, uh, through that. I kind of ended up going to UCF when well, I'm kind of, I went to UCF, you know, I went to community college for like five, six years. I was just kicking up dust, taking my time. What were you studying? I got a uh, associate's degree in like business and I was going to go to the university for business, which I didn't end up really pursuing. I, I went for like one, two semesters and then dropped out when I went to UCF. At the time I had started DJing at a bar, which was kind of a dive downtown uh called cleo's lounge which was kind of like you know um a legendary spot in that city where you know the drinks would be like this much alcohol and then hit it with a squirt of soda and people would go there it was like you know seven eight bucks and the the, guy, the owner will was like super cool guy he, he liked you know the funk soul breaks underground hip-hop thing and i had a wednesday there for i think like six or seven years oh wow and it was Cash under the table, you know, nothing crazy. I think it was like 150 bucks, which at the time was nice, you know, helped me support my, my, uh, habit, my record buying habit. And, um, I was doing that. I was going to school, doing the underground hip hop stuff, got a club gig. So the guy, Rob, who I was talking about earlier, who had gave me all the records or, you know, sold me some records over the years, ended up moving back to Atlanta and he had given me this night that he had just gotten started on called Saturday, Thursday at this club called Firestone, which is like a legendary uh, rave club in Orlando. And this was at the time of like the indie dance, electro, um, you know, that kind of scene was, was starting 2006. <clears throat> and so I did like the side room, which was like a smaller room. So there's three rooms, there's like upstairs, like the big main room and then the side room. And, um, that's when I learned about like kind of club DJing through that. So when you say you learned about club DJing, do you mean in terms of just, of DJing to a big audience or DJing to a mainstream audience or like what, what sort of nuance is it with, with, or specifically is it that you learned at that time? I learned a lot of different skills, but, but, you know, one of the striking things that's, you know, is like. There's a difference between DJing for your friends at a garage where people spin on cardboard and, you know, you're doing that kind of thing. Yeah. Versus there's women that want to shake their ass. So you're kind of like less concerned with one and then you switch gears into the other, right? If you get, if you get the women dancing, you get the men dancing. Yeah. The philosophy of like, you know, of that, of, of, of kind of catering to, um, a different demographic, you know, also keeping it up tempo, keeping it up beat, you know engaging people with songs they know also kind of mixing mixing things up so like the night was like indie dance era right so in the main room they'd have all the you know mastercraft justice um those kind of groups at the time which are pretty popular 
and I was just in the side room, the hip hop room. So um, to compete with that and to keep people in my room, you know, it was a little tricky. So I would start the night out with like breaks and b-boy stuff and the b-boys come through and dance. And then around 1130, we'd switch gears and I'd play more commercial hip hop when the, the ladies showed up, if you will. So I kind of learned how to strike a balance between the two and also to cater, you know, and all those things you mentioned, you know, were kind of like things that I picked up on in that era of my life. It's interesting, isn't it? Because with side rooms, because I used to do, when I used to do 1am to 3am at a club, in probably about the same era. And um, yeah, so that was kind of house and probably breaks, you'd have called it over. I don't know if you'd have called it breaks over there because breaks, it's not like the break, like what we think of as breaks. But it is probably more that like justice and things like that. And um, it's a tricky one because I think you've got to have a certain element, a certain level of energy, but not go beyond that because you've got to, it's knowing your place with what's, with what the main room is, isn't it? And you've got to be like this, this um, thing that almost like hugs it. And um it's it's the same thing as if you're supporting an artist knowing not to play their music and if you support you know if you do if you're the warm-up dj knowing not to play the obvious big hits say in hip-hop or whatever yeah so there's all these little nuances isn't there that, that you that you pick up on yeah it's dead interesting definitely like you know you're part of a team because you're trying to make the night a success right yeah so you know, you you want to do what's going to complement what they're doing in the other rooms, right? So um, that definitely plays a part in it. And, you know, going back to the opener stuff, you know, that was a, you know, a thing for me at a time when I would open for different hip-hop acts. And, you know, through my relationships at that club, I became like the go-to guy for shows. So like, you know, they booked KRS-One, hey, come DJ before the show. You know, Wu-Tang, different things. I think they had Eclipse at one point. So these are all people that you've that you've supported. Yeah, through through that particular nightclub. Nice. Because you know, I was a side room guy on the Thursday, and then when something like that would pop up, they'd say, "Hey, you you can do this. We'll put you on this as well." Um, which was which was cool. It was a lot of fun, you know, at the time, and it was very exciting in your early twenties to to just share a stage with some of these guys, you know, and whatever. You're, you're the warm DJ, but you know, to set the tone for the night was it was a real honor, you know. And um, those are some of my fond memories from early, you know early on before we switched gears, you know, um, hey. those were some good times. Um, I had ended up DJing full time for a couple of years and it's a bit hazy, but basically I had a Wednesday night, I had a Thursday night, I'd gotten all sorts of gigs through, you know, just people I met in the, in the local area, house parties, you know, Halloween just happened, Halloween parties every year, New Year's parties, um, weddings, things of that nature. Um, I'd started doing the home games for the football team. Which team? UCF uh, Knights. Oh, wow. So it's a university. So like the SGA, Student Government Association. One of the kids in the hip-hop club was like the president of that. He booked me on a contract to do every home game. So I think I did like eight, eight or ten games that year. Because college football is huge as well, isn't it? Yeah, at that time, that school wasn't as big um, in terms of, like, on the map because there's, like, a couple of big schools in Florida, and they're, like, Central Florida. It's not really, like, one of the right. eaters or the... Because um, I know my mate showed me footage from um, his Longhorns. So that's Austin. Is it Austin's? Yeah, yeah. And, and, like, it seems like they're huge. 
Yeah, I'm personally not into football like that, but yeah, it's definitely a thing, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the, the, just the whole tailgating party element of it, you know, college-age kids um, tailgating and... So were you DJing during... Because they're like the tailgating is the sitting out in the car park, isn't it? That's the part that I would do. That's the bit you DJ? Instead of a big tent, like this Oh, nice. And this was like, I'm not like in the game. This is like, you know, the, the pre-party kind of vibe. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. Big tent, and it was crazy because I was bringing out vinyl at the time. I didn't have Serato yet. And I was DJing, you know, and it was in Central Florida. The weather is very, you know, it can be kind of crazy. I remember one time it just thunderstorming and I'm out there with six crates of records and my gear just trying to like shield it all. Why there's torrential downpour. Yeah, I started meeting some people, doing some things. Um, I mentioned not having Serato. So I guess it was around 2007 when that kind of came on my radar. Um, there was a kid who had shown it to me a year or two earlier. I forget the earlier version, not Serato, but... Uh, Final Scratch. Yep. With the big heavy discs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? That, and I was like, dude, no one's going to use this, right? You know, this is crazy. It's cool, but like, you know, I don't see this being practical. It's Final Scratch that RZA invented, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. RZA. His claim to fame. One of them, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, yeah, man, I uh, I remember at the time, like, people were like, yo, you're still using records? Because I was doing all the, you know, club gigs and all these gigs with records. And that was kind of like, I mean, when things started changing, when Serato came out, right? People were DJing with CDs in that era, especially like the hipster electro guys, right? That have the flashlight and the big book of CDs. Mm. Um, and you know, I guess this just ties in the story because I ended up getting booked for uh, a New Year's Eve party through a friend of mine, and this was for uh, Joey Fatone, who was a member of InSync, a popular, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And one of my buddies, who was like a super head underground hip hop head, had actually worked for their family. Didn't want to do the gig, and he passed it along to me. And whatever, it was super lame. Like nothing too exciting there, other than the name recognition, right? But I did get a check for a, you know, I think it was like. 1500 bucks. Wow. So I took that and went and bought a laptop and Serato. And that's how, you know, I started on the digital format stuff through that one gig that was like, you know, a, a bit of a payday for me at the time. So I was broke, you know, I was really broke back then. Supporting myself through DJing. It was definitely like a different lifestyle, right? I lived in a studio apartment. Um, I didn't really take much to make me happy back then, but you know, I didn't really have like a much of a savings and, you know, um, I was kind of wilding out. I was a lot younger, you know. Lifestyle was a lot different. Sure, around like sort of twenty five ish. Yeah, yeah. College age, 20, 21 to twenty five, twenty six. Yeah. After DJing for a couple of years, this 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 Wednesday and Thursday, and mixed with the, the private gigs and whatnot, I've been able to keep myself afloat without having a, a day job, which was kind of like the dream at the time, right? Mm. But I kind of threw in the towel and got a job um, working for Sprint like a call center job, super, super lame. I worked there for about a year and I'd save some money working there because they had like a lot of bonuses and things like that. And me and my friends started booking parties. And the first one we booked, we, we kind of decided, hey, we want to do our own thing. We don't want to go play at the club. We want to kind of create our own thing, right? So me and this guy Francis started our own parties. We booked Maceo from De La Soul. He's supposed to be really good, isn't he? Like, I've never seen him DJ. He's great. He's, he's one of the, you know, the best guys I've ever met. Just a jovial, happy person to be around. DJing's great. You know, he's a legend in, in you know, in uh, our circles anyways. And um, the night of the party, I was trying to leave work. I don't remember what shift I worked, but I think it was like 8 or 9 o'clock. 
and I was on like my last call and it was like a customer service thing. So people trying to cancel their, their lines would call and you were like the last line of defense and try to talk them out of it. And the guy was just rambling like I am now. Right. <laughs> and I wanted him off the phone cause I wanted to leave. Yeah. Cause I wanted to go into the, the club cause you know, we were doing this thing with Maceo. I was really excited. And I said, oh, hold on. Let me transfer to you, uh, my uh, manager. And I just hung up on him and left. I've done, I've done plenty of calls sent to work. I, I get it. Yeah, like I just dipped. I was like, all right, dropped the call and went to the party, which was awesome. We lost money. I don't think it was a great success financially, but it was fun. And I bought a lot of our friends out. And um, we did a couple more after that. I got fired from the job and I basically used my savings at the time to try to build a series of parties. It was very short-lived. I think we did like three or four. Before I realized it wasn't financially feasible, but it was our attempt at like doing it our way. But you can, you learn so much from things like that though, don't you? That's the thing. It's, you know, I think this is a really interesting message for people generally as well. It's if, if you put too much emphasis purely on financial results of things, you just, you can be quite ignorant to the amount of growth and opportunity and learning you get from the other, you know, there's all the abstract profit you get from stuff like that. Yeah. I think. You know, the money in hindsight was whatever, you know, in the big scheme of things, it didn't matter at all. You know, we booked uh, Kenny Dope for the next one. Nice. I'd love to see Kenny Dope. You never seen him? No. Oh, wow. See, I love his, um, there's a few of his mixes that are, that are some, Kenny Dope's in my top three DJs for definite. Great, yeah, phenomenal DJ. Like, one of the greatest of all time, for sure, hands down. And... and yeah, we, we had like this, it was like a small venue called the Peacock Room, just a tiny like bar with like a little side room where like we had these guys and yeah, Kenny Dope came through. Um, the next one, we had tried to book Pete Rock and it fell apart. We got tricked by a fake uh, manager who like took our deposit oh, no. and didn't give it back. And um, that didn't work out so well, but um, learned some valuable like business lessons, you know, in terms of like partnerships and just you know, like you said, it really isn't about the money. So I don't want to really focus on that. It's about creating a scene. And, you know, through that, other things materialize, you know, in terms of gigs and friendships and opportunities and um, just good times in general, you know, um, we kind of just kept on going. Um, I started another party with these local guys called Lazy Afternoon, which we did for a few years, which was just kind of a similar concept of like doing our own thing and not having to cater. I would do, there's this bar called Barbecue Bar, which is uh, just a little dive bar. And there was a set of turntables in the corner with a really janky sound system. And they had a Thursday night and we would kind of rotate through there and like one week would be my week, another week would be somebody else's. And it was super fun. But um, he definitely catered a bit to the crowd, right? People are drinking, they want to have fun. Um, and we were like, we want to do like kind of our own thing. So we started this party, had some really phenomenal guests come through. It was a really good time. At the time I had lost my job because I had hung up on the front of the customer and, you know, I was blowing through my savings, throwing these other parties in the beginning. And, um, I think I took a temp job and I was working at another call center for like some health benefits thing. Um, the day I got fired, uh, friend of mine who had moved to Miami, um, named Sven, who had previously DJ with me a handful of times at Byron Center in Orlando. You know, we, we kept in contact, but he had moved to Miami at some point. 
And he calls me and he says, hey, I'm dating this girl, this woman, and she's the bar manager of this club. And it's a really good spot. We can do whatever we want. He's like, I want to bring you down. What do you want to do? And me just being like, you know, sky's the limit. I was like, let's book DJ Premier. He's like, cool, let's do it. Got this guy's email, connected everybody, made it happen. Had Premier at this club in Miami called Bardo, which was kind of like a seminal turning point in like my DJ career, if you will. Drove down, excited. You know, it's a four hour ride from Orlando to Miami. You know, my friend drove, I was in the passenger seat getting my Serato crates ready or whatever. Showed up, it was a phenomenal time. Got to meet one of my heroes, which was great, you know? And in terms of like DJing and you look back on like the, the cool stuff you did, you know, meeting that guy and, and, you know, being able to have a brief combo with him was really cool, you know? And that night was just amazing. You know, the, the club was packed, sold out. I don't know how many people to hold. It's not very big, maybe like 400, 500 people, but it's a small room. So the energy was just really great. I think I smashed it. At least I remember I did. And Premier got on and also killed it. And from there, the club was like, hey, we like that guy. Let's start bringing him back for our hip hop nights. So through my friendship with Sven and his, at the time, relationship with this uh, bar manager, Anna, they started bringing me down anytime they had like a hip hop act. So I drive down from Orlando and be the opening DJ. I don't really, I'm just kind of like all fuzzy, but there was a bunch of different stuff at the time, like Action Bronson, this one, that one. Oh, nice. And this was like a, a pretty cool era. It was like around 2011. 2012, somewhere in there. Was that your was that your first your first gig supporting someone high profile? You know, it wasn't. Um, I'd done some stuff in the past, actually quite a few things up to that point, but it was one that was kind of special to me because he, in my head, was such a you know a god, if you will. You know, um, I, I put him on on a pedestal. You know, I'd opened for P Rock before. Um, actually opened for Britney Spears once in Orlando. What was that like? Um, so that was a uh, a weird and strange uh, gig. <laughs> you know, we'll, we'll say that to start. Um, a friend of mine, Francis, was, um, uh, I guess, a stagehand at the House of Blues. He was like an audiovisual school at the time there in Orlando. And um, they needed a DJ for the, the show that she was doing at the House of Blues in Orlando. And this, you know, happened to be the first show after she had like her mental breakdown. And I don't know how familiar you are with, you know, Britney Spears and, and her uh, her moments, but it was, I think, 2007, maybe, when she chafed her head and went after the car with the umbrella and all that stuff. Yeah. So, um, you know, this was her big comeback show. And uh, she was doing, a, I think, a series of shows, like two or three shows, but this was the first one in Orlando. So I, I, got, I got the call, you know, and I was pretty excited to to play pretty big crowd you know a few thousand people there sold out and i remember the day because i was getting ready for the gig and uh i got a call from uh house of blues management and they said hey you know their um her manager wants to speak with you before the show and kind of incorporate you uh, as a small part of the show in a segment that they're doing if you can get down here a, lot, a little bit early that would be you know be great so, you know, I was with final time, threw everything in my car and headed out to House of Blues, which is probably like 45 minutes away from where I lived. On the way there, got a flat tire, stuck on the side of the highway, uh, had my sister come pick me up, take me down there, and I made it there just in the nick of time. 
to like set up the turntables and start playing. So I didn't have to get to have like a real conversation with, with her management about how that was going to happen. But, you know, in, in a brief, you know, way, he told me this is what's going to happen. Um, there's a, a, a costume change in the, in the middle of the show. Um, we just need you to pop up and pretend like you're DJing for like 30 seconds, you know, and then just pop back down. And he was very clear about, hey, don't look behind this, you know, this little curtain. That's where they're going to be changing the dancers and whatnot. Um, so please be mindful of that. Pretty simple stuff. Um, uh, I remember when I got there, there was like a line around the block for her to see her perform. Uh, and they set me up like in the front of the stage. So I have my, my 1200s and I'm there DJing and I'm a bit nervous, you know, there's like a lot of people there and, um, it's kind of out of my realm musically of what I do. Not as familiar with her audience, you know, and I remember I was just, I was playing, you know, uh, Gorillaz, Madonna, Prince, Michael Jackson, upbeat, popular stuff from, you know, various times, you know, and at one point I was looking down, I was so nervous, everyone was started cheering, I didn't re really realize why, but she was like on the front of the stage, like waving to the crowd in her pajamas before the show or whatever. So anyways, um, you know, I did get booed at one point. Now, now it's coming back to me. So I got booed um, because I played the sexy back instrumental underneath another song just to tease it. And I guess that was at the time when they were breaking up or whatever. So her fans weren't happy with that. Whatever. I DJed for a couple hours. Hang on. So you got booed by, were you getting booed by thousands? Yeah. I mean, it was like a pretty like Britney centric crowd. I don't know if you know about like, you know, her, 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 uh, fan base but you know they're pretty loyal yeah and, um i was kind of joking around and in my head i thought it'd be funny you know <laughs> on this instrumental and to tease it you know and see it. it did not go over well i mean it was it was funny it wasn't really a big deal but um you know it was it was interesting so the the, the best part of the story comes when um you know my my uh my part of the show comes up and i pop up and there's like these old like cdj kind of things i don't remember in particular what they were but um whatever i pop up and i'm like a pretty big dude so like i'm pretending like i'm djing i'm just like kind of standing on my headphones you know doing the generic dj stuff you know <laughs> um fake twiddling with, with knobs they they run back on stage and i go to hop off this little wooden platform they had there and when i do that my weight hits it and it causes the cd to skip <laughs> and it, it skips a few times and everything was kind of going in slow motion at this point. Um, of course, she's lip syncing. So the dancers and her just repeated the same move like three or four times. I don't remember how many times it was. And as the CD stuttered and the show went on, nobody really blamed me for it. Nobody said anything to me. You know, I kind of just ducked in the back and the next day it was on TMZ which was like, you know, back Man, then there was no social media and, you know, whatever. Yeah, TMZ was a big deal. But it was her, you know, lip syncing and the CD, you know, her, her show CD skipped. It was my fault, so it's pretty, pretty, uh, pretty funny. <laughs> well, it's definitely one for the grandkids. So then going back then, so you got your foot in the door at that bar then. So what was next? So I was able to build a relationship club individually and then they offered me a weekly residency. So, um... I was doing every Wednesday night there for, for some time. 
And that was kind of what led to me moving down south to Miami. How long was the drive again? Four hours. Oops, three and a half, four hours, depending on on traffic. So, you know. Each way. Each way, yeah. So typically what I do is I drive down, I crash on my friend's couch, um, you know, drive down Wednesday afternoon, do the, do the night, and then go back Thursday. Or if it was, you know, a Friday or Saturday show, you know, we come for the weekend. But uh, a lot of back and forth, beating down the highway. I had like this old Honda Civic at the time, uh, absolute bucket. And um, yeah, man, I, it was it was work. When I think about that that aspect of it, it was a lot of work, just the the commute. So my friend called me to offer me the the, the weekly. The same day I had been let go from this, uh, I had like a temp job for a little bit, like a month or two, and I was like, cool, I'm gonna move to Miami. And I just uh, got a moving truck packed up. I'd been offered two different residencies at the time. So I was doing Wednesdays at one club and then Saturdays at a restaurant that uh, was called South Street. So I had two weeklies right off the bat, enough to kind of sustain, you know. And that was kind of a, a transitional time and a, and a wild time. It was it was fun. I was uh, a lot younger, you know, I was 28, 29, something like that. And I was moving to the city. A bit intimidating at first, but also um, there was a lot more opportunities in the market because... You know, in Miami, there's a lot of DJs here, but there's also like a ton of different avenues, right? I'm, I'm DJing at a restaurant. I'm doing a Wednesday night at a club, you know, which is kind of unheard of in Orlando, you know, in terms of like Wednesday. Um, there was hotels on the beach. There was pool parties. There, you know, there was like, you know, corporate parties that they do. There's all sorts of different things that happen here in Miami. Um, there's a lot of opportunities for DJs up and coming, trying to get their feet wet and, you know, trying to give it a go, uh, as a career, if you will. Um, yeah. So that time was, was, was fun. You know, I was just coming to, to Miami. I was, you know, seeing who's who and what's what had a lot of really cool experiences through those first couple of years. You know, it was, it was difficult to establish myself, uh, in the market, but, you know, eventually I, I was able to kind of solidify my position. I had, uh, had some interesting gigs like at that restaurant South street. It was only open for maybe six months. I think I did New Year's Eve there that year. But they had like the Heat players would come in there. And this is the time of like the dynasty of, you know, LeBron James and Dwayne Wade when they're, I don't know how familiar you are with American basketball, but this is when they were, you know, going to the championship like every year for like four years, if you will. So I ended up DJing um, Dwayne Wade's Thanksgiving dinner at that restaurant. When it comes to Miami Heat fandom, he's he's the guy. Yeah. And um, they, they had rented out the restaurant that year for Thanksgiving and I just was upstairs playing Al Green and Marvin Gaye and kind of soulful stuff, you know, for his family, like 30, 40 people. So that was cool. Um, I ended up losing that gig. The restaurant closed abruptly. Um, and I got another gig at a place called Wood Tavern. And it just so happened to be that the week, the week the restaurant was closed, I got offered this other Saturday night. So, this is kind of important um, in the story because uh, Miami was kind of in a state of flux. Things were changing. The whole South Beach scene was still around back then. And uh, there was a new area opening up called Wynwood, um, which was kind of like a little a more uh, artist-driven. There were some galleries at the time. You know, they used to do this thing called Art Walk once a month. What was it? What, what was the South Beach scene? Um, the South Beach scene was, was the kind of stuff I didn't like. Um, you know, velvet ropes and, uh, 
you know, big room stuff, whether it be uh, hip hop, auto genius, house music, um, not necessarily bad per se, but it wasn't a scene that I personally was into. I remember there was a thing where DJ Shadow played somewhere. Was that in Miami when he turned up to somewhere and it was one of these bottle service places because like a festival had been cancelled, so someone booked Shadow or something. And I feel like that was in Miami about maybe about 10 years ago. And it was just the wrong crowd. I think he just ended up walking off. Yeah, that was uh, one of those big room clubs. I think it was Mansion, maybe. Shadow was an artist. And if you go to a Shadow show, you're going to check out Shadow. You know, you're not there to hear him, you know, play the top 40 songs of the day um which is an art to that as well but yeah that that was around that time and um he got pulled I, I remember hearing about that i think jazzy jeff got knew it around the era too with another club maybe that was in vegas but um yeah it was like a weird time you know like the electro kind of stuff was still going on swedish house mafia and all that mm-hmm. and i was just like this like side room hip-hop guy that like i didn't really identify with any of that it wasn't really my thing so it was, you know, EDM, I guess is what it was, right? Like that's like the, the yeah. term of that era. Like, um, I never had any of that stuff, but I was able to kind of navigate the, you know, through it and do like, you know, my own thing in a way. And like the South Beach thing was just, you know, if, if you didn't know somebody, you're paying $40 at the door. It was like typically what you see in your head and you expect is what it was. Whereas where I was playing in Wynwood was a little more chill you know you can kind of come as you are kind of thing and it wasn't it was like the antithesis of, of that yeah i don't know how to explain it but anyways like I, I got a gig at this place called wood tavern which had just opened a year prior and i was doing saturdays there that turned into like an eight-year residency that i did every saturday for a, quite a while and that was started as a small kind of quiet place and you know then it got into turn pretty popular in it you know quickly um and it was just like a a dive bar if you will but it was pretty you know it was large and um the music format had kind of switched over the years which which i guess is part of this conversation into like you know getting burnt out on djing and and uh and just you know kind of seeing the the writing on the wall with that but you know in the beginning i was playing like fun party stuff you know Jackson 5 into Mystical, you know, Grooves in the Hearts, classic, you know, stuff from years past and current. And, you know, it was fun. You know, it was a little bit more open in terms of what you can get away with. And then, um, you know, doing the Saturdays there for years, I would get pressure from the bartenders, you know, and the patrons. So, you know, hey, can you turn up? Is what they say. Oh, let's turn up. They want to hear whatever future or I don't know I, I can't even remember the names of some of the stuff I was playing but um it turned into like a different kind of format which is was more like hip-hop like you know modern hip-hop kind of thing and the box got a lot smaller in terms of what you can play and what you could get away with you know unless it was a long song or a hip-hop song or bad bunny towards the end there it just you know you were getting blank stares and in the beginning you could play some old school stuff you can play some new stuff you can kind of mix it up but as the years went by, the the patrons got younger. Maybe I got a little bit more jaded. But that job definitely became more difficult as the years went by. Only because I felt like, you know, in order to do a good job as a DJ, you want to cater to the people that are there. And, you know, I want them to have fun. I'm not there for myself, right? Like, 
so these songs that you play, you know, even the songs that I love after so many times of hearing them, I just, you know, was just miserable. Yeah. I know when I, when I was, um, I used to DJ it, there just some bars in locally, you know, I've, I've, I've done some good gigs, but I've not, I've not done any sort of exciting support or, or anything like that, or any very, very long-term things. I've done things where I've done them for a year or so, but something I, I used to often do when, when I used to do the bar sets, I was able to play, I would mainly play disco, a bit of old school and golden era rap and like maybe a little bit boom back, but like songs like um, Mo Money Mo Problems, what an amazing song, but I would never play it because I didn't want to usher in like a load of shiny suit era requests. And then I didn't want people, so this is like mid to late 2000s, I didn't want people to be asking for a load of things like yin yang twins and chingy and stuff that for one thing I didn't have, for another thing I didn't care much mm -hmm. to have either. I just didn't want to open those doors. Um, it's a really tricky thing, isn't it? And like you say, when the soul gets sucked out of a song for you because it's it's just something you kind of almost playing on repeat because you know, well, it's gonna it's gonna keep the wolf from the door. Yeah, you know, you're talking about more money, more problems. I mean, I must have played that, I don't know, count, countless times, and I had ten different ways to get out of it. You know, ten different little routines with it, and I would switch them up depending on you know the the mood and the week and whatever. And, you know, in, in, in hindsight, that's actually pretty good. You know, I remember when that stuff came out in the late 90s, I was like, oh, what is, you know, shiny suit stuff? That's the Jiggy era or whatever. But as I got older, I'm like, I, I kind of like had an affinity for it because that became better than what was coming out, right? 100%. At least in my opinion. It's interesting how well it's aged. Yeah. And it's like, you know, it's timeless. Yeah, like some of the Mace stuff. Yeah. I mean, it's like, do I want to hear that stuff? Not really. But does it feel bad? Not, you know. You know, it's like, uh, it's, it's got a good energy to it for the most part, you know? But yeah, man, that, that was a really crazy time that, that, like, that moving to Miami because I was doing all kinds of stuff. You know, I ended up getting a, a ton of gigs over the years. I did some really fun stuff, man, over those years. Um, you know, support Shadow. I opened for Shadow and Cut Chemist um, when they did their tour. The, uh, oh, like, wait, oh, the Africa Bombada one. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Where they use his records. Mm hmm. So I got booked for that back in Orlando, actually. I had to drive up for that. And that was crazy because I think I DJed on Friday and I had to wake up early in the morning and drive back, you know, three hours north. It was a house of blues and that was a big show. Did you get any time to talk to them? Uh, those guys, I saw them backstage briefly and I was a bit nervous. So I didn't really, you know, they just said, hey, great set, whatever. And that was kind of it. And hey, nice to meet you guys, you know? Yeah. I remember going to a record shop with Peanut Butter Wolf once and just being like, <laughs> I really am um, starstruck. Yeah. And just going, is it true that Madeline makes a, an album a day? Yeah, I could definitely turn into a bit of a fan. But yeah, man, like that that whole era was, was a lot of fun. Um, I was able to kind of do, you know, do all right with the gigs and so forth. I, uh, when I first moved here, I was a little bit more, um, uh, let's say, hungry. I was going out even when I wasn't working to kind of see who was who and what was what and going to different spots to kind of see, you know, what, what it was. And, you know, DJing in Miami is a different animal. 
So kind of doing doing your research job, really. Yeah, it's it's, it's research, and you, you talk about regional stuff, right? Like even three hours away from Orlando or four hours away, there's a regional sound here that people identify with. So I remember I got booked for this wedding. Um, this girl, she was an artist, and uh, she was getting married, young young couple, and they wanted the song uh, DJ Laz, S.A. Morena. It was a huge Miami hit back in the day, like I think 90s, 94, 95. And I, I heard the song and I remember it peripherally, but I didn't have it, you know, so I had to go to Serato and get it. And then I had to have that that booty bass, you know, two live crew mix on deck, you know, for that little 30 minutes or whatever, which, you know, I was kind of familiar with, but I wasn't as well versed back then as, as, as I am now, right? Um, there's all sorts of regional stuff that's unique to this uh, this city, but um, yeah, man, that, that was a fun time. Uh, I ended up getting like a gig. I did like, this restaurant called South Street, which was a old steakhouse on Miami Beach. It's been open for over a hundred years. It's closed now, but back then it was uh, still open. Is that the one you were saying before that you were doing on the Saturday nights? Different restaurant. Oh right, right, right. With the what did I call? Oh, no, the restaurant. I'm sorry. The restaurant I said South Street. The restaurant was called the Forge. I'm sorry. On on Sundays, so the, the chef from South Street moved over to the Forge, and she bought me along with her. And I was doing like their Sunday night dinner party, which is such an easy gig. I would roll in. I think I played from like eight to 12. I'd get free dinner. It, it was just like, you know, one of those things that was like, you know, in Miami, they wanted a DJ for ambiance. That's the sort of gigs I want more of. I don't want to make people dance. I just want to curate an atmosphere. Yeah. I mean, it was great, man. It was just easy, you know? And then uh, I did like the Mondrian pool, which is like a big hotel for some time. Um, this guy, Max, hooked me up and he made me the resident there. And, and that was amazing. You know, I'm just on this hotel on South Beach. There's basically a, a pool that overlooks the ocean. And it's just women in bikinis. And I'm just playing music. So I remember my Sundays, I would do the, the gig at the pool. And then I'd go to the, the dinner spot. And um, I'd be pretty much wiped after that. But uh, how many times a week were you DJing at the peak? At the peak, probably four, maybe five. You know, I had a Saturday night. I had a Friday night two on Sunday, and then I had a Monday. You get five. Wow. Yeah, there was a time there where I was doing five gigs a week. That was around like 2016, 2017. That's intense. It was a lot, man. It really was. Um, the Monday night was hard because I started doing a Motown on Mondays thing here, um, which is like a part they do in San Francisco, um, and they kind of branched off into different cities. Is that Expo? Yeah, Expo doesn't want one in LA. So they, you know, they, they have different branches. Right. And I went to San Francisco uh, one summer and I went to the party and had fun. And I talked to the guy about doing it in Miami. So I set it up there in Miami. So I would do Friday night, Saturday night, two gigs on a Sunday, Monday comes around and I'm in the bar till three in the morning. You know, the place that it was at was open till five, but I would, you know, it's three 30 would kind of end it, the music anyways. And that would be pretty intense in terms of like, just uh feeling like a grind and, and getting burnt out you know and I'm making great money back then you know five gigs a week it was it was good but yeah definitely became it was a lot you know and more so than the actual djing itself just the late nights you know maybe the drinking on fridays and saturdays if i'm being honest um, you know and uh by the time monday came around tuesday i was dead to the world you know i'm surprised sleep all day and but you know i'm i'm, I'm painting kind of negative picture but it was a lot of fun man you know i had a great time 
a lot of cool stories from that era. I remember that Sunday night that I did, it was like somebody's birthday and they booked Trick Daddy and Trina at the restaurant. And I'm like, such a Miami moment. I'm sitting there DJing at the bar. It's like a quiet Sunday night. There's not much going on, but there's like a little stage set up with some instruments and they had booked this band. And then all of a sudden Trick Daddy rolls up and he's like, Hey, he gives me a little dap, goes on stage. They do a couple songs with the band. It was pretty sick. It was a very Miami moment. That whole, I don't know, five or six years when I first came down here was just kind of a whirlwind. A lot of partying, a lot of drinking. My friends opened up a place called Coyo Taco. So it was actually right down the street from Wood Tavern, which was a place in Wynwood, that new neighborhood that was kind of establishing itself at the time. They were there at the right place at the right time. Um, they gave me Friday nights there. They had a tequila lounge in the back room. Small spot, but with like a really good system. Um, so I was doing Fridays there for... I don't know, six years up until the pandemic, pretty much. Then all kinds of stuff. There's certain times of the year where, um, like our Basel were like, you know, all these corporate entities would be in town and need DJs for gigs, you know? So those weeks I'd be fully booked up doing little activations and, and whatnot throughout all this, you know, working DJ stuff. I did feel like I probably lost a little bit of my identity musically. Yeah. You know? It's, it's such a hard thing to juggle with DJing, isn't it? Because you want to be you, but you want to put food on the table. I know people that kind of don't have a musical identity at all, and but that's kind of their skill set in a way because they'll go somewhere, have to work out, is it a hip-hop crowd, is it an EDM crowd, is it a house crowd, and they'll just have to work it out as soon as they're there and, and just move with whatever. Personally, I can't think of anything worse than that. It would just give me anxiety. But yeah, it's, it's, it is a real trade-off because if you want the lifestyle of a working DJ, then it's something you maybe just have to do, isn't it, at times? It really, I mean, it's just the hard truth of it. Unless you're at a certain level and you're like a DJ Shadow, for example, or you know, an established producer who put out a hit or something. But you know, if you're just a guy on your grind getting gigs... You got to adapt to the situation, you know? So well, no, no matter what it is, if you're doing a, a bar, a club, a wedding, you know, it's just part of the, the, the job, really. And it's it's a hard truth. And, you know, you grow up and you and you kind of, uh, what's the word? You, like, fantasize about DJing. Like, it's, you know, it's an art form and, you know, like, learning. you know, you have this in your head. Like, at least I did when I was younger. You know, I was a hip-hop dude, you know, like, underground hip-hop head and, like, you know, and it, it is, and it's, it is, and it's not, you know what I mean? When, when push comes to shove and you're in front of a crowd of people and they're looking at you, like you just want to dance, all that kind of is thrown out the window. And then, you know, you're, you're playing Michael Jackson and Diana Ross for the 15 million time or whatever, you know, and that's an art form in itself, you know, and I think it's kind of an overlooked one because, you know, rocking a party is, is a, is a discipline and it does come with some experience and some, um, some practice, but, um, yeah, man, like, you know, I had this identity when I moved to Miami. I was like, you know, doing hip hop and, and playing some Latin stuff and, you know, some interesting or what I thought was interesting at the time music. And that all kind of just got washed away and beat down, of, you know, several years of like doing these gigs, you know, like I still had an interest in this music, but I no longer was like trying to be that DJ that, you know, was playing um, maybe stuff a little left to center. Um, I was just throwing balls right down the middle. And, you know, I'm trying to do it creatively and in my own way, right? And I think I had my own like flair and style of, of, of doing it, but 
the the box got a lot smaller for in terms of like selection and you know i couldn't really get away with some of the stuff i would have liked to play and eventually i kind of felt like i was just one of the guys on the, you know there's a handful of djs in town that, that do these gigs some are better than others but we're all kind of interchangeable because at the end of the day the bar sales will ring the owners and the managers will be happy and it's it could be me it could be you you know we're all kind of in the same wheelhouse of music right <laughs> um so the adapting was good and bad at the same time if you will like it's you know it's a double-edged sword Definitely. I think you're raising some really, really interesting points. Um, this is really good stuff in terms of me thinking about things to kind of go into with people on the podcast about the life of a DJ. Because your identity is so important to you. Like you say, you know, you, you're young and you're getting into it and you think, right, I'm this, I'm that or the other. And then, yeah, reality hits and there's so many different factors that make you have to compromise it some people can't let go of it you know conversely you've got the people that totally succumb to just being oh this dj whatever the thing they want is to be a performer whereas say you or i i think you want to be a selector maybe probably more than being a performer as such you want to be curating the sound curating the music and then there's the people that their selection is what they're going to play. They don't, couldn't really care less whether people enjoy it or not. And that can really hold you back, I think. I mean, unless you're uh, well-established, the people, the point where people know your tunes and like, you know, you're a producer or something, that's a whole different thing, you know? But in terms of just being a working DJ, yeah, you got to, you kind of have to uh, appease the crowd and, and cater it somewhat. And, you know, I have a good friend who's a pretty well-known uh, disco and house DJ here and you know we booked him a couple times to do his thing and you know he told me he had a saturday night back home where he kind of has to play you know in, in a bar that he's been doing for like 15 years and um you know and that was an eye-opener for me because i was like really like mm-hmm. I, you know and he's like yeah you know it's just whatever i get i give him it's a weekly gig when i'm home i do it when i'm traveling i do this other stuff you know and it's just part of his uh his scope of djing you know and you gotta have the steady stuff it's like in in a lot of in a lot of different jobs you know i'm guessing that the corporate stuff some of the corporate stuff might be quite stuffy but pay really really well yeah see in that case it's it's worth selling out for right yeah when you're doing a corporate gig i'm like i'll play whatever you want the check's good you know and really your identity isn't wrapped into that at that point you're just doing a gig right because no one's there to see you know dj why not or dj whoever they're just there because they're having their company holiday party or whatever you know yeah but I guess in some regards, having a, a musical identity can help you in that realm as well, if you really think about it, because sometimes they'll be like, all right, we like the energy that this guy brings or musical style and they'll book, you know, I don't know at the time, like, you know, uh, what was it called? Uh, new Disco was popular, you know, and so they might book a new disco DJ yeah, or something, you know, so I don't know. Um, I will say this, you know, it was a lot of fun. Another part of the conversation is just how hard that lifestyle can be. Um, I think people presume that you're, you're working four nights a week, you know, three or four nights, you know, and you're, they see it as a part-time and you sleep all day, but that's not really the case. There's like a lot of different stressors involved with that industry. Well, one big one that, you know, talk about is drinking. You're the party, become the party. And it can, it can be, lead to your detriment at times, you know? Um, 
because you're just constantly, you know, three or four nights a week you're in it. You know what I mean? But yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it takes its toll for sure, doesn't it? Yeah, and it kind of ties into what you were talking about earlier with like anxiety, right? You had mentioned getting anxiety when, you know, the, the crowd and the drinking is, is helps with that, you know? Um, right. It would help me get into the mind state of like, all right, you kind of want to be on a similar level as the people that are there, at least kind of get loose, right? Because if you're uptight and you're like, you know, I've definitely had times where I didn't drink, you know, I, I did like a year and a half, two years where I just didn't drink at all. And that took some getting used to because when you get there, you're, you, you want to have a energy about you. Especially if, if you're an introvert as well. Yeah. But I would get anxiety like when I DJed all the time, like, you know, towards the end, a lot more. I don't know why, which is kind of kick in. Can you share what that anxiety was about? What sort of thing? What was it about anything kind of tangible or, or was it just a general kind of fear? Um, it would just be an uneasiness because you'd get to a place and maybe, I don't know how to explain this, put this into words. The, the anxiety would stem from a place of like, you want to make these people happy. And I would feel more and more disconnected at a certain point because I wasn't as, as interested in the current uh, landscape of music, right? And, you know, things started moving at a pretty rapid pace there when digital stuff got involved, right? Um, more so in the last 10 years. And, you know, the, the crowds get younger. And then, you know, I remember one night I was just warming up. It was like 1030 at night and I was playing some some Nas or something just to kind of whatever. I'm just running a couple joints before the night gets really going, you know. And this kid like went at me on Twitter and was like tweeting at me like, oh, this guy's putting us to sleep, blah, blah, blah. And those kind of situations would give me the most like, you know, because you don't want to be like, the guy that's lame, right? So you're looking at a crowd of young kids and you're getting blank stares, you know, sometimes that kind of thing. People in Miami are ruthless, especially because they're drunk. You know, I've, I've gotten, you know, the thumbs down, you know, looking at the DJ booth kind of thing. If you play the wrong song or something, you know, which I'm sure happens everywhere. Um, but yeah, man, I just think that the anxiety stem from a place of you just wanted to do a good job and not really knowing what the crowd needs or wants at that, you know. So, um... I don't know, man. I don't know how to explain it, but yeah, there was definitely some times where I got a little anxious and then the drinking would kind of just mellow you out, you know? Yeah, I, I I used to get it. I probably still do to a slight extent, but if I was going somewhere where I had the pressure to do, I was DJing at a night and I had to make people dance, that I'd get certain gigs where I would just like, in the middle of the afternoon of that day, I might have booked it months before, in the middle of that day, I'd be like, as I was getting ready to go and leave to do it, I'd be like, why, why I said I'll do this? Because mine was always about that confrontation with people. I just felt like if someone comes up and, and gets funny with me, I don't know how to handle it. You know, because some people can be quite rude. Totally. Yeah, learning how to deal with those. It's like any job you have, the interpersonal feelings, right? Like, I've gone on the mic and, and tried to embarrass people before just because... Like, you know, in the last few years there, I just stopped caring as much and I'd still get the anxiety, but then I'd realize like if someone comes up to you and starts, you know, requesting or, and being, you know, whatever, then who cares? You know, I mean, there's a 10 other spots in the city you can go to the doors there. You know, I, I had my way of dealing with it, but I, I know like that was also a part of the job that got a little, uh, tricky and, and learning how to compartmentalize that 
where it's not an attack on you as a person. It's just maybe they don't like the style of music. Maybe they won't, you know, want to hear something they know, whatever, you know. So that kind of be- became a thing at some at some point. So like, was there one sort of particular catalyst that made you think I need to get out of this, or did it was it lockdown or it was lockdown? Really? Yeah. I mean, you know, you're talking about music and so so forth. At that point, everything had been kind of homogenized musically, right? Yeah. So I guess. It was- 2020 right like but i was just kind of i don't want to say i was phoning it in but i was just you know playing the hits getting the job done you know at the time i had a serious girlfriend we've been together for five six years now so that had kind of changed you talk about like interpersonal relationships my lifestyle shifted i couldn't be going out going out after i dj you know i had to be somewhat accountable of this other person at this point we moved in together that kind of changed things a bit my perspective a bit um getting older as well and then, you know, COVID happened. And I remember that uh, that Sunday getting the calls, you know, hey, we're closing, you know, we'll let you know, you know, whatever. And just being like, fuck, this is it, you know? Like, and in my head, uh, you know, I was concerned like financially, of course, because, you know, I was kind of living by, by DJing and that was my one income source. And I had been for the past, you know, 10, 15 years at that point. So I was pretty nervous, but um, it was also kind of nice. It was a relief. To, to not have to like be out there because you you know going back to how the conversation started with you were saying about like lifestyles and families and so on and so forth there'd be times where i'd miss visiting my folks for the holiday or you know whatever because i had gigs you know um you when you're tied to this thing it's like you're, you're kind of married to the, the industry in a way and you know i guess when you get to a certain level you can pull away when you need to but i felt like you know these gigs I had to, I had to do. Right. Um, so when COVID happened, it was somewhat of a, a relief to just be at home, you know, and obviously there was a, a lot of, uh, question marks about the future and, and so forth. And I did kind of give it a run afterwards. I started doing my Saturday again for a little bit. And at the time when things reopened, things were kind of earlier. So things were going till midnight and then closing, which was great because at that point we'd all been inside for however many months, you know, and my, my schedule had adjusted, my lifestyle had adjusted, you know, I was going for long dog walks and like doing things that were like kind of normal, quote unquote, you know? And, you know, when I went back, I just looked at it a little differently, you know? And I didn't start doing my Friday gig again. Um, I just kind of gave that up, which I've been doing at that point, like six years. And the Monday, I never pursued again, um, the Motown night. So like, I just had the one Saturday I was doing for a little bit and it just felt I don't know how to explain it. Didn't feel right for me personally. I would go in, play the music, you know, whatever, but I wasn't connecting with it the way I used to. And that was uh, kind of the end, man. I don't know. It was kind of anticlimactic, you know, just kind of just echoed out of, of DJing. And I, I started going in the direction, the different direction with the record store because before the pandemic, I did, I was a partner in the record store. Oh, nice. And it was kind of like just a side hustle, you know, um, me and my partner would just, we'd leave used inventory there. We had people that worked for us, but we didn't like, we weren't super active like that. And then, um, during the pandemic, uh, I wanted to switch gears and sorry, this is all kind of ties this to the story, but the, the friend who initially brought me to Miami, his name's Sven. He was the one who gave me the record store cause he has a bunch of businesses. And he was like, hey, man, I have this record or this space. You can sell records here if you want, you know, in front of this food hall that they had. Yeah. So, you know, he looked out and then 
he's like, this will be good for you if you ever want to like, you know, back away from DJing. Cause he, I think he knew at that time I was kind of like burning out a bit. Was he someone that you met through DJing? Yes. Yeah. I met him through DJing. He used to be a DJ, uh, 15, 16 years ago when I was in Orlando, I used to do a night and he would come out with some friends and mutual friends. And then he actually ended up playing with me a couple times, uh, back then. And we kind of just stay connected or whatever through the years. And, um, so yeah, he, he's someone I met through literally through DJing. Yeah. And, uh, he kind of gets it, you know, he, he understands and he's gone on and done some great things in the business world, opened up a bunch of places here in Miami. And, uh, you know, he looked out and he's like, Hey man, you can have this. We, we set up a little deal, um, you know, for the space and, you know, it was a side thing. And then now it became my main thing. And at that point when the things started reopening, um, I was trying to figure out how to keep it afloat because, you know, we had no, you know, several months of just nothing. Right. And we're ready to still do and this and that and the other. So I figured it out, really applied myself. And I, I realized at that point that there's only so many hours in the day for you to, to do stuff, you know, you know, even with the music. Right. So like, say you're, you're really into like, you know, digging for records and stuff, but then you got to go out and play Drake all night, you know, your energy is a split, right? Mm. Versus you, you can, you can go full throttle one way or the other way, but when you're trying to do both, it's a little more tricky. Right. So I, um, and decided just to drop DJing as a thing, you know, as a regular thing. And then just dig for records and, and do the store and kind of put my efforts there. And it's been great, man. You know, honestly, the lifestyle is a lot healthier. It has its stresses and I'm not going to say it's, it's all, you know, it's so much better because time wise, you know, I probably spend 60 hours a week, give or take. Yeah. I don't know. You know, the lifestyle is different. I can't sleep till noon anymore. You know, I can't go get twisted on a Friday night and, you know, wake up and order pizza at 1 PM and, you know, do it all again. Those carefree days are kind of over and, you know, I could look back on it as a good time and, and fun. And I think of all the experiences I had, all the, you know, the, the people I got to meet both, you know, noticeable, notable, you know, producers and whatnot. And just, you know, the, the friends that I made along the way, which is, has been quite a few when I really think about it, but, uh, you know, tons of cool experiences, tons of great life experiences. Um, you know, I wouldn't trade it for anything, but I'm also glad to kind of put that for now, at least in, in the hindsight. And you know the rear view, and I, I do get sometimes I see videos or whatever, and just think about it. And I want to get back into it, and you know, but I the truth is, I just it's kind of behind me at this point. Is the record shop all going well? Yeah, I think you know there's been a renewed interest in vinyl, and it's it's been going well. We're in a pretty high traffic area, and it it ties in with the DJing in a sense. You know that there's DJs that shop there. I'm still sharing music. You know what I mean? Ultimately, my 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 life's mission of sharing you know whatever is still that itch is being scratched if you will you know and uh yeah for the most part it's going well i mean and sales have been great um it does a bit more of a, a time commitment because it's really like you know they say like business a business owns you so how how do you approach buying collections at the shop so that is probably the funnest part for me you meet up with total strangers and all kinds of different life circumstances that have led to them um, selling their records. You know, sometimes it's a loved one passed away, whether it was their dad, their uncle, their aunt, their grandma, etc. Uh, sometimes someone's making a move. Sometimes it's an old DJ who's making a career change and um, had loads of 12 inches they've been sitting on for the past however many years that they just want to clear out. Um, and 
it's it's interesting because you get to meet up with people from all walks of life and you know you definitely talk to them you talked about their music how they acquired it you know some people know nothing about the collection some people um it's what they live for so um that that part of it i find very interesting and you know it all ties together with the djing because i have met you know a fair share of djs through buying collections and you know there's some interesting stories of one guy i met during the pandemic he had a couple heart attacks and decided I'm not going to be around much longer. I need to get rid of these 12 inches. And he was the guy who had spun at the limelight in New York and had, you know, a, a few thousand 12 inches that I picked up from him. And it was like, not only at the end of his DJ career, it was like literally about to be the end of his life. Um, and it really puts things in perspective. And it's very poetic in a lot of ways when you're going through someone's records that passed away or, you know, in this case, is planning on the future. You know, and it just kind of like lets you know, like all this is kind of in a grim way. It's, it's temporary, you know, and um, you're not taking any of this stuff with you. The music continues to live on, though, and it sounds kind of cliche, but, you know, it gets passed along, you know. So I I go to someone's uh, house, you know, an hour away in South Miami. I pick up a collection, then go through it and put it back into the wild for, for the new generation to, to enjoy, you know, so it's great you know and I've, I've got a million different stories about the people i've met over the years so the one the one i'd really like to know about is when i saw that you've come up on all these bobby caldwell what you won't do for love promos is it a 12 inch or a seven it's like a seven technically but it's like slightly bigger because it's heart shaped yeah looks amazing so yeah this guy worked for uh tk records it wasn't a, it was a, a label from uh this guy henry stone and he's a really famous, uh, you know, record exec here in Miami that had done a lot of great things over the years. Anyways, he had worked for him for just a handful of years in the late seventies and early eighties. And, uh, he had a box full of sealed copies of Bobby Caldwell's what you will do for love on, you know, the heart shaped picture disc that everybody wants. And they're all sealed with the, with the hype sticker on them, never been touched. Um, and he's held them for, you know, uh, almost 40 years now at this point. Um, and carried around with him his whole life until he met me. But um, it's crazy. Yeah, I always wonder about it when people hold on to things for a long time. I just think, why bother? But then you hear a story like that, and I'm like, that's why. Yeah, and uh, he, he had some interesting stories regarding the label, and, and basically, like, he only worked there for, like, I think he told me three years, you know? And for whatever reason, this was something he carried around with him for his whole life at this point, you know? Did he say it was an A&R? No, he wasn't. He he would like work in the warehouse. Right. And I guess at some point they were, uh, the warehouse was going to catch on fire for some sort of uh, tax purposes. Excuse me, not tax, insurance purposes. Pardon me. Um, and before that fire took place, the someone's wife had said he can go in and, and take a couple boxes of records. And that's one that he grabbed. That's mad. So basically, they were burning down the uh, warehouse in order to get some insurance money. Um, and they're like, you'll take out a few records if you want before we do this. That's insane. Yeah. It's it's pretty interesting because that's like a you know local lore. Is that the right word? But like lore? Yeah. Basically, uh, you know, that at some point, this TK warehouse had burned down to like some electrical fire. So I guess we'll kind of leave it at that in terms of how it took place. But... God, it sounds like something out of Cocaine Cowboys. 
it's it's Miami being Miami for sure. Yeah. And, do you ever um do you ever put obscenely cheap items in the shop randomly just to kind of see if anyone finds them and gets excited? Always. Yeah, so that's kind of something that like it's fun for me. So like I'll find like a there's a local Miami record called Coke. And the, the the group is like a house band from the late seventies. Um, bunch of Cuban uh, kids. They were like sixteen, seventeen. Had this uh, like funk rock kind of vibe. And you find them in Miami, and they're super sought after. But they're always in kind of rough condition. Um, they're a popular band with kids, so usually the covers have drawings on them. And I'll find them and just you know kind of dogged out shape, and I'll just throw them in the dollar bin and hope somebody comes across it. You know. And somebody always does. And I was like, yo, what's what's this doing in here? And I'm like, yeah. Or, you know, just obscure uh, random records that, you know, maybe the cover's a little rough or something, you know. You, you don't want to charge a premium for it, so you just throw it in the dollar bin and see who can, uh, who's the real digger and, and who, you know, is really getting after and they get, they get the reward. And what's it like being being record store, Tony? What's how's life looking now? Is it a lot more relaxing? Is it harder? Was it was it a big change? Yeah, because I guess the um, hours are probably a lot different. I will say uh, there are some parallels between you know DJing and what I'm doing now, and then there's some things that are kind of flip flops. Um, the lifestyle is completely different. You know, um, I'm waking up at five six in the morning and going to bed early, which is kind of a given, right? Um, you know, in terms of uh, like work and stress and all that. Um, it's a different uh, kind of stress and a different kind of work completely. So I work way more hours than I did as as a um, as a working DJ. And when I say that, I mean like you know, obviously you DJ for fun, you practice, then you go out and you do your gigs, which is twenty hours a week. Whereas you know, owning a small business every day is is work in some you know some respect. You know, there's no unplugging and and uh, and going away for a while, but. Um, you know, it's a it's a different lifestyle. It's a different kind of stress. Um, I would say it's a lot better on um, my mental health and my physical health in a lot of ways, just due to being removed from the nightlife. You know, not drinking as much. You know, not not being in that element. Um, I'm completely removed from like club music, if you will, or like you know whatever is popular. I'm not keeping up with you know uh, the flavor of the month kind of stuff anymore. Don't ever open my Serato anymore, which is something I never thought I would do. And, and you know, the parallels are, are cool because I'm still involved in music. And uh, in a lot of ways, I'm still sharing music with people, just in a different format and, and different capacity. Um, you know, and there's a lot of DJs that come by the shop, a lot of up-and-coming guys or, or women that I can make recommendations to. Hey, I think you'll like this. And all the knowledge I built up from the past 20 years, I can, you know, kind of share with them a bit. So that part I really do appreciate, and um, I can say that uh, that is the, kind of like the common theme between both. But um, it's it's night and day in terms of like, you know, just uh, the lifestyle and and um, the day to day activities. I suppose something that's quite nice is that you've got the people that want to be a performer, and you've got the people that want to be a curator, and I suppose you still get that curation satisfaction, don't you? Because you're still shaping things for people you're building a collection of what's in the shop mm -hmm. 
it's up to you what you want to be what you want to be putting out there and you and, and what you want to be buying from collections and things and you, you can still assert that kind of influence which is good yeah that's a great point i think the curation is is totally key um my shop is really small it only holds a few thousand records so you know when i get a big collection um i kind of look through it and pick out the bits that i think are interesting and that people would want um or that i would want you know the performance aspect i guess isn't quite there and that i do miss a bit because you know when you're djing and you're, and you're playing in front of a crowd of people and they're having fun and their hands are in there waving and dancing and smiling it's a feeling that you'll get from nothing else you know so that part i will admit i do miss a bit but uh you know in terms of the curation yeah it's still it's still there for sure just different styles of music and you know different format that's awesome that's such a nice point to end on um, do you want to give a shout out for your record shop? Yeah, uh, shout out to Lucky Records in Miami. If you're ever in the area, please uh, stop by, check it out. Thanks for listening to the Once a DJ podcast. If you've got any questions or feedback or any suggestions for guests, please just get in touch with us at onceadjpodcast at gmail.com or on Instagram at podcast. Take care, and we'll speak to you soon. Uh, oh, that was nice.